As we progress through the Lenten season, we're faced with the fact that the texts we use are frequently quite familiar to everyone. So, so much so that someone or other may be in some ways tempted to use this as an opportunity to catch up on some sleep. Therefore, I would humbly request that if it is your habit to catch some extra Z's during sermon hour, that you would get a cold drink of water or uh, stand up and walk around for a minute before I get into the text, stretch your legs, because... I think I can say without exaggeration that this is going to be one of the most important sermons that I have done since I've been here. It's often been a struggle to lay out the truth of the gospel in a compelling and understandable way that allows the message to be brought forth without injecting opinion or side issues of matters that obscure the truth of the good news to those who otherwise might hear it. Today is one of those days that require that you look within yourself to see whether or not you are one of the people to whom I refer in the examples that I will be giving in this morning's message. It might be uncomfortable for you to do so, but take stock of where your faith is this morning. You must find out whether or not your faith is based on self-deceit or on the word of God. That each day you are doing an honest self-assessment so that if you're a Christian, your life is bringing glory and honor to God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. With that in mind, we have our three words of the day to go along with the three points of our exposition. The words for today are the contrary, the command to compel, and the condemnatory censure. You like that one? As always, I... Two words. words. Condemnatory censure. I will define. So our text for today is Luke 16, 19 to 23. Luke 16, verses 19 to 23 to start with. These are... The contrary, contrary, opposite in nature, direction, or meaning. Contrary. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Okay. Let's recall the situation of this story with a little background. Jesus has been teaching at the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath. While most of the Pharisees hated Jesus, in chapter 13, some of them had warned Jesus that Herod was seeking to kill him. After that episode, he was sent to eat at the house of one of the rulers of theirs when a man with dropsy or edema or swelling or what we called accumulated fluid in tissue came into their presence. While eating, he asked the scribes and Pharisees. Now remember, the scribes are like the lawyers. They parse all the words of the text. If it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath, when they refused to answer, he asked them again if they had an animal that had fallen into a pit, wouldn't they free the animal? Again, they had nothing to say, so we went ahead and healed the man. Taking note of where they sat, and they always sat in the best seats, he told them a parable about these things. Now, we know that parables are not what they seem to be at all times. We look back and see a parable and we see a story that is giving a message, but the message we must remember was obscured to the members of the audience until Jesus gave them the key to to the explanation of what he really meant. He left the dinner, went into the public to teach, and a multitude followed him, including a group of tax collectors and sinners. Shame on him. You know, the worst kind of people that a preacher should ever hang around. He shouldn't be hanging around those kind of people. I mean, they, they might rub off on him. But they were listening intently to everything that Jesus was saying. So he told a total of seven parables between the Pharisees and the disciples and then issued a warning to them, one about justifying themselves before men And another about marriage and divorce. Now, with that background, let's deal with the task at hand about the contrary ones. Jesus begins to speak of a man who had lived a great life, clothed in purple and fine linen and dined only on the best food. You know, he went to Ruth Chris, Hyde Park, you know. The best food every day, all day. The type of clothing that he would wear had never been out of style and was out of the ordinary for anyone but royalty. 
So even though he was not a king, he always dressed like a king. He was, as they say in uh, the youth culture, pimped out. So he had considerable wealth during this time period. And his clothes spoke to the people. Erdman's Bible Dictionary said, the wearing of purple was associated particularly with royalty. In addition, the New Bible Dictionary tells us the use of linen in the Old Testament was prescribed for priests. The coat, the turban, and girdle must be of fine linen. So even though he wasn't of the house of Levi, he was dressing like he was. So on top of dressing like royalty, he was dressing like a priest. So we have someone who is pretending that they have the office of priest and king. Hmm, that sounds like what the Messiah is supposed to see. Like prophet, priest, and king. So we see the garments are of one who is of high station in society, the very people he's been rebuking as he's been speaking all day. And we know that the scribes and Pharisees were of high position, and the Pharisees in particular loved to lord it over people and wear fine clothes and sit in the best seats everywhere they went. He may have lorded it over those who were in his presence at all times. On the other hand, we're told that there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was covered with sores and was merely seeking to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Again, the Greek text gives us additional information that is lost in translation. Where we see it saying poor man in English, the word actually means destitute of wealth, position, honor, and influence. In other words, this man was helpless and unable to accomplish anything on his own. To tell you the truth, he wasn't just poor. He was what my grandmother and Great aunt used to say he was po. He was so po that he couldn't even cover his sores, but even the wild dogs would lick his wounds. So the beggar dies and was carried to the angels by to Abraham's bosom. So far, so good. Now, Abraham's bosom is a phrase that came into usage in Jewish texts that was drawn from popular culture and a belief that when you die, if you lived a righteous life, you would be next to Abraham, particularly during the time of Christ. The word kolpon literally refers to the lap or side of a person So Lazarus is said to be at Abraham's side, just like John was at the Last Supper. So imagine being that close. We're told that the the beggar was carried by angels to this place, but the rich man, the one that had all the fine clothes and fine food and everything, he died, but he was buried 
Whereas we're never told that Lazarus was buried. Now, the interesting thing about this was the place that he is said to be in torment was Hades, or as it's pronounced in Greek, Hades. This was considered to be hell or the grave, the place of the dead. It is not a pleasant place to be. Here's another interesting point in this story. We have the beggar's name, but we're never told the name of the rich man. This has led to speculation that it may have been because it was a parable or it may have been because it was true. I've not found the need to speculate on it myself, but let's say that everything that Jesus said has a meaning behind it. Verses 24 to 28. The command to compel. The command to compel. To give an authoritative order. To force or oblige someone to do something. And he called out. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now, you might say that his behavior is not surprising since it's typical of those who have been given a life of privilege. And we know that he hadn't been in Haras for very long. So Lazarus, having been poor, he figured, all right, let's tell Abraham to tell him to go. I'm not going to speak to this poor man because that's beneath me. Come on now. Tell Abraham to tell him to go dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. Because I'm in agony in this place. But instead of complying with the request, Abraham lets him know the rules of the place he is going to be spending eternity. Let's remember that we're not saved By grace. And if you're not saved by grace, by default, you'll be judged by your deeds. Mm. Lazarus is in comfort because he had faith in the Savior who was to come. But the rich man is in agony because he gave no thought of God in reality, nor his neighbors, nor anyone else. His only concern was for his status wealth in life, and the maintenance of his lifestyle. Therefore, every deed done 
will be brought into consideration to weigh the severity of your time in the eternal flame and woe. Those who have lived an extraordinarily bad life, like Hitler, Pol Pot, Putin, will be judged based on the things that they have done. Now, there's no way for good to ever outweigh bad. Because remember, we're judged not only on the deeds we perform, but also on the thoughts that we have. So, it's not enough for the rich man. So Abraham gives him further details of the great gulf fixed between Abraham's bosom and Hades. It's likely they're able to see great distances since no one is permitted to pass from one place to the other in either direction. But there's an interesting statement on this in a commentary that I read. It would seem that the rich man's hell was something like solitary confinement in prison. There may be others with you, but you are hardly aware of them, nor is there any real fellowship. What you are aware of is the bliss of the righteous. It's as though hell has a one-way picture window and each resident of hell is given a pair of binoculars. The wicked are thus enabled to see the joy and bliss of the righteous, but it appears that the righteous are unaware of the suffering of the wicked. The wicked can see out, but the righteous cannot see in, so to speak. This makes total sense, particularly when you think about the effect of regret on a person. There is hardly any emotion that is more difficult to deal with than regret. And when you look at this passage, there's an ample dose of it right here. But much of, much of it that the rich man wanted Lazarus to warn his brothers but again, he's forgotten where he is and that he has no authority in this place. Remember, Jesus told us in Matthew twenty sixteen, the last will be first and the first will be last. You may not have understood that passage before, but you should try and write it on the walls of your heart so that you understand that your position in this life has no bearing on your position in the next life. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher, teacher, mathematician. It's not important that you're a painter, a statesman, or a homemaker. All the things that define you here have no bearing on your eternal destiny, but rather it's whether or not you have faith in Christ and Christ alone. Amen. Verses 29 to 31. Condemnatory censure. All right, ready? Condemnatory censure. An expression of severe disapproval. To be condemned is to be given an expression of severe disapproval and censure is the action of being disapproved. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, 
But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What prophetic words that were uttered to the rich man by Abraham? You know, a a lot of times people think, oh, if I live back in the days of Bible times, if only I had been able to walk around with the disciples, I would have been one of the best disciples. You a lie and the truth ain't in you. You would have been one of those just like the, the other folks that were saying, mm, mm, mm. look at that preacher man over there. He hanging out with them prostitutes and wine bibbers and, uh, oh, my Lord, them tax collectors, the cheating, lying thieves that they are. And he over there eating with them. Mm, mm, mm. He just as big a heathen as any of them, and probably worse. The fact of the matter is, it's only by the word of God that we are able to obtain mercy, because it's in the word of God that God has revealed himself to humanity in the text of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, Because there we have the reliable testimony of God describing himself. These words are fascinating. The rich man wants somebody to return from the dead to warn his brothers of Hades. And Abraham's answer is, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe it if someone raises from the dead. Now, we know that to be fact. You want to know why? Jesus has been raised from the dead and people don't believe it now. It's documented, factual, you know, People don't understand the easiest thing to have done would have been for either the Romans or the Jews to produce the body of the crucified Jesus and Christianity would have been wiped out in a day. It wouldn't have taken a week. One day, produce the body, it's all over. But in fact, we have testimony that he appeared not only to the twelve, But to the 120 in the upper room, then Paul tells us he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. And Paul says, many of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. So some of them died, but you can still find these 500 brothers that saw Jesus face to face and you can go ask them. And that's not even counting the the brothers on the Emmaus Road and others that have we have testimony of you keep your mind on the things of God and not on the things of the world you need to keep showing the evidence of God in your life and the reality of his presence in your heart do you show delight 
in the presence of God and the assurance of his grace and mercy? Do you show mercy to those to whom you don't owe mercy? You know, it's easy to show mercy that you feel to those you feel sorry for. But those who have wronged you. You know, we forget that Jesus said to turn the other cheek. We want to get revenge. We don't want to act right. We want to get right and smack him. We want to be like Will Smith. I want to go up there and smack him in the face. I ain't like you anyway. But that's not what we're called to do. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Do you see that scripture needs to be alive to you and active in your life? Do you see that the great and precious promises in the scriptures are there to encourage you and be a reality to you? Do you find God more glorious and merciful and moving than you did before? Do you repent on a daily basis of not just the actions you take, but the attitudes that you have? And that I say this all the time, well, over the years. Remember, in 2 Timothy, Paul said he was the greatest of sinners, the chiefest of sinners. Do you know why he said that? It wasn't because he was sinning more at the end of his life than he was at the beginning. He was more sensitive to sin at the end of his life than he was at the beginning. Luther said the life of the Christian is a life of repentance. So, hear what Peter says in the second letter to the churches at Asia Minor, or Turkey today. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What Peter is talking about here is the same thing that the author of the book of Hebrews points out, that those who come to church, who hear the word, who participate in fellowship, that have heard about the mercy of God, 
that leave without true faith become worse off than they were before their experience and often become enemies of the faith rather than champions. The warning of the story of Balaam in the book of Genesis shows what happens when someone who is a prophet of God tries to turn their gift of prophecy into profit, P-R-O-F-I-T. His words condemned himself and he has forever been sullied in his reputation by his seeking after monetary gain rather than being faithful to his calling as a preacher and prophet of God. You cannot, under any circumstance, please both God and the world. The world looks on the externals, the appearances for granting of glory. God looks on your heart to see if you've cried out for mercy in humility and repentance. You don't know. I don't know. No one knows when their time on earth is done. And there's no way to change that date. You can't ask for an extension like you can for your taxes. When your day and time is up, you have to be ready. Therefore, I implore you, don't wait until it's too late.